Our sermon reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 1 through to the end of the chapter. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfil what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him 
the name Jesus. Thanks, Julie. That was a, a big reading. I'm going to try and make sense of that passage now. One of the things I learnt um, in Bible college is that when you start a sermon, you've got to start with a bang. Uh, it has to grab the audience's attention and create an interest and promise to meet a need all in the opening few minutes. Uh, but it's not just sermons. Movies and books are the same. The opening has to be powerful. It's got to set the scene for what is to come. And I'm told because publishers wade through a whole stack of books each week that they basically only spend a couple of minutes reading the first few pages and if it hasn't grabbed their attention, they throw it away and pick up the next one. So why, when we come to the book of Matthew, the biggest gospel and the start of the whole New Testament, does Matthew start his gospel like this? This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and so on and so on. And before long, we're skipping ahead if we're bothering to read it at all. It's a list of names. It's hardly riveting stuff, is it? And most of us would struggle to read it. In fact, that's the best I've ever heard that passage read, so well done. Um, well, we know God is a great storyteller, and so was Matthew. So the problem's not there. It obviously lies with me. And I think the reason this genealogy is here is because it is interesting and it does create a need and it does uh, do everything a good intro should. And ultimately because it answers the two most important questions that every Jewish person would want to know. Who is the Messiah and what's he going to be like? So Matthew begins by establishing the fact straight off that Jesus is the Messiah in verse 1. And then he mentions the two key people that had to be present in any pedigree for a messianic claim. That is Abraham and David. Abraham was the first trustee of God's great promises that through his descendants all the earth would be blessed. And David was the great king on whom was promised an eternal kingdom through his descendants. In fact, in the book of Matthew, on 10 separate occasions, Jesus is referred to as the son of David. That is the messianic title given to him. So unless it can be proved that David had come through Abraham and David, then there is no claim for the Messiah. And so that's why Matthew, after making that statement in verse 1, goes ahead with the genealogy to, make, to prove his assertion. Now, I think, in actual fact, that genealogies are something we tend to be interested in. Um, in the last 12 years or so, genealogy uh, websites have taken off on the internet. Um, companies like Ancestry.com is a multi-million dollar company and I'm sure most of us here uh, have at some stage um, tried to find out who's in uh, our family tree. It's become a popular pastime, not to mention the highly successful show Who Do You Think You Are, which traced the ancestry of famous people. And when we think of getting a purebred dog or a racehorse, suddenly pedigree is something we're really interested in. But whatever interest we might have, in our genealogy, it pales by comparison to the Jews. Uh, they were obsessed with their genealogies. In fact, so obsessed that Paul has to tell both Timothy and Titus uh, in his letters to guard against those who are fascinated by endless genealogies. And the reason for this obsession was that if any man was found to be of the slightest mixed blood, he lost the right to be called a Jew, uh, to be a member of God's people. Think how the Samaritans were treated, who were a mixture of Israelite and Assyrian blood. They were hated and despised because of their impurity. A priest was bound to produce an unstained record of his pedigree going all the way back to Aaron. And if he married a woman, she had to, to show five generations 
of pure blood. That's why in Ezra 2.62, when those coming back from exile could not produce uh, the register of their pedigree, they were taken out of office and they couldn't serve the Lord. That's why King Herod, who was half Edomite, had the register destroyed so that he wouldn't be looked down upon by his Jewish subjects. It was crucial that any claimant for the Messiah had to prove a legitimate family tree. And that's why Matthew has started his gospel the way he has. Jesus is the son of David. He is the great descendant from that promised king's line. He is the son of Abraham. He is part of the Israelite people, the people of God. And Luke's genealogy goes even further. He is the son of Adam. He's a true human being. And he's the son of God. He is divine. What greater credentials could we have for the Messiah? But secondly, Matthew goes ahead and answers the question of what is the Messiah going to be like? Now, Don Carson, in his book, uh, Call to Spiritual Reformation, says this. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and so he sent a saviour. Now that seems obvious to us today, but it certainly wasn't to the first century Jews. They had perceived of a very different messiah. They read the prophecies of how God would come and destroy their enemies, and they understood that to mean that he would deliver them from their Roman masters. They expected him to set up an earthly kingdom, a kingdom in which they would be the rulers, not the ruled. They overlooked the Messiah's spiritual role as a deliverer from sin and Satan and death. They didn't understand that his kingdom was spiritual and not political. And Matthew makes it very clear that Jesus is a saviour from our sins. In verse 21, when the angel appears to Joseph to assure him of Mary's purity, he says this, She will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus, which means God saves, because he will save his people from their sins. But Matthew's already given us an indication of that through the genealogy. He shows us this is how God has always worked, what he's always been concerned with. And he shows us the sort of people God chooses and uses for his kingdom, the weak, fallen, and sinful. Abraham, first on the list, doubted God's promise, slept with his servant Hagar, which made a mess of his marriage and her life, and then had the nerve to send Hagar and her son Ishmael away when it became inconvenient. Furthermore, he was willing to allow Sarah to be taken by a foreign king because he was too scared to declare that she was his wife. His son Isaac did the same. Jacob was a massive deceiver and liar. Judah, the fourth of Jacob's sons, sells his brother Joseph into slavery because he's jealous and then sleeps with Tamar, his daughter-in-law, believing she's a prostitute. When she becomes pregnant, he goes to kill her until she could prove that he was actually the father. Talk about an episode of The Bold and the Beautiful. And this is only the first four people in that list. When we get to the kings, it gets even more sordid. Manasseh was one of the worst. He built altars and shrines to pagan gods in the temple of God itself. He worshipped the stars, the moons, the planet. He practised witchcraft and consulted spirits and mediums. He even put his own son to death in worshipping a pagan god. But I think the greatest testament to God's choosing of sinners is the list of women that are listed in this genealogy. The very fact that women are mentioned at all would have been quite surprising for the Jewish people. 
Generally, they weren't listed in any ancient uh, genealogy records. Women were seen as the property of men. They had no voice, no authority, no legal standing in the first century Jewish life. And when you look at the particular women that Matthew has chosen, more eyebrows would have been raised. Tamar sold herself as a prostitute to a father-in-law Judah, we just mentioned her, and was most likely a Canaanite. Rahab was a Gentile prostitute. Ruth was from Moab, the nation which began with Lot's incestuous relationship with his oldest daughter and were barred for ten generations from entering the assembly of God because they didn't welcome God's people when they came into the promised land. And then there was the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. We know she was an adulteress, infamous for her sin with David. Her husband was a Hittite, so she too may have been of foreign blood. And then there is a fifth woman, Mary herself. No sexual sin here, no foreign blood, but just a young, poor girl from a backward uh, town of Nazareth. A nobody in the light of, of things. So there you have it, five women, four Gentiles, three sexual sins, mostly poor, mostly misfits, widows, unimportant, unknown, sinful women. It's interesting that Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel uh, godly women who no uh, scandal is found in the records are not mentioned in this genealogy. Matthew is making a point. He's making a point that God chooses the ones that we overlook. You know, in Jewish society, the Jewish men would pray every day, thank you, God, that I'm not a woman, not a Gentile, and not a slave. These were the undesirables. But for God... They are precious. They are chosen to be in his family. So I want to ask two questions uh, for us to consider in the light of this passage. And the first is, will we embrace the fallen, sinful, lowly nobodies of the world as Jesus obviously does? Now, the religious have always struggled with this. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were a classic example um, because if you believe that your salvation comes through your good work and your religious observance, then you're going to look down on others all the time as not being good enough. Now, I've found myself falling into this trap on occasions. I hear my neighbours arguing or talking and start to criticise. There's bogan-sounding conversations, uneducation, or I write off suburbs because of the reputation they have there, and I judge those who live there. I find myself being racist towards certain races because of what the news items are telling me about the political situation. I wonder how happy I would have been to hang around the people that Jesus surrounded himself with. See, I need to remember that God chooses and loves and uses the Rahabs and the Tamars, the Judas and the Davids of the world, and he rejects the self-righteous Pharisees. I need to remember that although I teach at Tiggs, I come from Penrith, Penrith, and if Nazareth was good enough for the King of Kings and Galileans were good enough for his closest friends and carpentry was good enough for his profession and tax collectors and prostitutes were good enough for his dinner guests, then how dare I show prejudice to anyone? I feel like Matthew 1 is Matthew's equivalent to Luke 15, where Jesus has to remind the Pharisees who are complaining because Jesus is hanging around tax collectors and sinners. He has to remind them of who he has come for and how much God loves all people, especially the lost. And he tells that wonderful story of the boy who wanders away and comes home and is embraced by his father. But the 
parable there is a call for the Pharisees to get on board, to embrace God's grace, to come in and party as well. Do I rejoice to see sinners finding God's grace? Do I pray for those that I struggle to love? I think that's the first challenge of this passage. And I think the second one is, will I embrace a saviour for my sins? See, we're all looking for salvation. The Jews believed that they could get, if they could just defeat the Romans, if they could just get their land back, if they could just have their freedom, then they'll be saved, then they'll be at peace, then they'll be happy. And I think we do the same today. Now, there's an ad on social media at the moment. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, it's been put out by Match.com. And the ad starts, uh, it's, it's about Satan finding his soulmate. The ad starts 11 months ago with Satan sitting on his underworld throne. He's bored when he hears a notification on his phone. Uh, it says, you're a match. And Satan is intrigued and meets his match under the bridge on a rainy day. 2020, Satan asks his match. Please, she replies, just call me 2020. And then the commercial documents the couple's journey through very 2020-like scenes. They're at the gym where they're running on a treadmill, but no one else is around, it's all closed. They're at the movies, and of course, everyone else isn't there. And then 2020 runs off with this toilet paper from the toilets. <laughs> and the ad ends with the title, A Match Made in Hell. And of course, for many Australians, it's not just the one in a hundred years pandemic they've battled this year. It's been the droughts and the fires and the floods. It has been a hell of a year. And I make that point because for people, salvation is about getting a vaccine. It's about keeping my job. It's about saving my house and providing for my family and getting through this year. Sin may not even be a thought in our minds. In fact, a survey was done in May 2020 uh, for 1,000 Australians aged 16 to 74, and they were to list their greatest worries. There were 18 top responses. COVID, unemployment, climate change, healthcare, crime and violence, education, maintaining social problems, moral decline. On and on it went. But i tell you what wasn't there. Personal sin. It didn't even enter the world's radar. And see, what this passage reminds me is that the greatest issue in my world, my greatest need, is not something that's out there. It's something that's in here. It's a heart that needs replacing. It's a heart that needs softening to others and opening up to God. It's forgiveness. Eight chapters later, uh, Matthew will remind us of this, when he tells a story of a paralysed man that's brought before Jesus by his friends. And his friends and everyone who are watching is saying this greatest need is for this man to walk again. And of course Jesus looks at this man and says, son, your sins are forgiven. There is nothing in this world, no situation in our life that can be more important. Have you embraced the saviour for your sins? Have you asked Jesus for forgiveness? Do you know Jesus as your Lord and saviour? On Friday, this came home to me uh, very clearly when I went to the funeral of my neighbour, who was a, a good bloke, an old mining uh, guy. And as I sat and watched the, the, um, the funeral, I saw all his mining friends 
lined up in the benches, big guys in their Sunday best, all choking back the tears, and his family as they laid the, the flowers on the coffin. Tears and tears and tears. And it made me realise, as we all know, that death, death is never welcome. It is never natural. It is never wanted. It is never good. It was never part of God's design. It was never the way it was meant to be. Death robs life of meaning. It takes away our loved one and it looms over the head of each and every one of us. But here, today, as we open God's word, we hear that God has provided an answer. There is a saviour. There is one who has come to defeat death and offer eternal life. He gives hope to the grieving. He gives life abundant and eternal to all who put their trust in him. He is the promised one that we've all been waiting for. We may never need fear death again, but look forward to eternity with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think of David's line and the great promises you made to him, we thank you with all our hearts that those promises find their fulfilment in Jesus Christ. He is the one that deals with our greatest need, the sin in our lives and the death that comes as a result. And we thank you that uh, by putting our trust in him, we have forgiveness, we have peace with you, we have eternal life to come. May we embrace that truth today and recommit ourselves to you. For Jesus' sake. Amen.